I referred to this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as the creation self-destruct button. Now, I'm familiar with self-destruct buttons from Looney Tunes cartoons, where they sat on dashboards right next to start buttons and the button that launches the ejector seat. Vehicles and cartoons possess, in other words, dashboards engineered by morons. It only occurred to me this week to determine whether self-destruct buttons exist outside of a world where rabbits talk and crashing through a wall leaves a body-shaped hole. Apparently, test rockets can self-destruct. If there's a button involved, though, it's not pushed from within the rocket. Mission Control sends a signal that triggers the destruction because it's better to have a malfunctioning rocket blow up high in the atmosphere than to have it crash land to the ground. In other words, it's a safety feature. The tree of knowledge of good and evil does not appear to be a safety feature. It's not there for when things go wrong. It's the cause of everything going wrong. Eating from it causes Adam and Eve to run for cover. It's it's tempting to see this as just Looney Tunes engineering. A terrible mistake that's bound to cause trouble. You'd think God would plant it on a remote, poison ivy and spider-infested island. Not in the middle of the garden. Make its fruit ooze, throb mysteriously, and smell like rotten eggs mixed with sour milk and armpit. Or better yet, don't include it at all. God created everything. Surely God is capable of not creating something too. Just skip the tree. But God doesn't. He plants it smack dab in the middle of the garden, as if, rather than being a design flaw, it's critical to the whole undertaking. The whole operation somehow requires this tree. After God places the man in the middle of the garden, God sort of introduces him to the whole operation. As I've emphasized in previous weeks, the whole operation is an act of grace. It's a gift, and here God establishes how this gift is fully stocked to supply his basic needs. And it seems to me the text presents three basic needs. First, it meets his nutritional needs, material needs, and it does so in abundance. I mean, you can sort of picture the gesture makes, or God makes when God tells him that he's free to eat from any tree. You know, his arms are wide and he's turning All of this. Now, there's, of course, the one exception. This tree here. This tree has nothing to do with your nutritional needs. In fact, eating from it has the exact opposite effect of other fruits and vegetables. Rather than sustaining your life, it'll end it. Does that mean it has nothing to offer? Again, is this just bad engineering? A flaw in the system? No. It, too, meets a need, meets his spiritual needs. Human beings are, as was said previously, these bridge creatures. Like our plant and animal siblings, we are formed from earth. But our earthen form was brought to life by divine breath. Something of the Almighty animates our being. To lose touch with that is to rob ourselves of what makes life a gift, And it is something all too easy to forget in a culture driven by consumption, a culture that reduces us to our material needs, reduces us 
to consumers, beings who exist simply to exploit resources. Now, we'll say more a bit about how this tree meets this fundamental need, this spiritual need, in a moment. However, as I said, the text suggests that there are three needs supplied by this, uh, the gift of creation. There's material, nutritional needs. Second, spiritual. Third, relational. Uh, So after the business about the tree, God says, hey, it's not good for you to be alone. So God organizes this animal parade and marches, marches them past the human being. so They can receive a name and naming, right? Speaks of relationship. Um, to know something's name uh, makes helps form that relationship. Uh, it's a demonstration of care. So, uh, but even as this happens, uh, there's this recognition that none of these animals is sufficient to meet that relational need. But here again, God comes through in spades, creating the woman from the side of the man, and Adam is thrilled. All the needs are met, abundantly, thrillingly. So why does everything go so terribly wrong? Because the serpent, the serpent manages to reframe the whole operation with a single question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The God we meet in chapters 1 and 2 is exceedingly generous, an exceedingly generous artisan who ensures that every need is met in abundance. Now suddenly with this question, we're not so sure. Now we're wondering what God is withholding from us and why. God starts to seem less generous and maybe even a little stingy. The question having sown this distrust, Adam and Eve eat. And eating does precisely the opposite of what they assumed it would do. They assumed it would that eating would make them like gods, enabling them to transcend their humanity. But instead, it exposes it. All they see is their own nakedness. I've mentioned David Foster Wallace quite a few times in recent weeks. Uh, I've become a bit of a fan, but I'm not alone. Um, the opening pages of Infinite Jest are just filled with these blurbs from reviewers and reviewers from the San Francisco Chronicle, Harper's Bazaar, Chicago Tribune, New York Times, and they're all falling all over themselves to say how much they love the book. One calls it so brilliant you need sunglasses to read it. Another offers to buy back people's copies if they don't keep it strapped to themselves at all times. I found myself reading those blurbs and wondering what would it have been like to be Wallace and read those things. How proud he must have felt. How satisfying to have invested so much time and energy into this novel and have people thrilled by it. But even as I was thinking that, I knew it wasn't satisfying, at least not satisfying enough. After all, in 2008, David Foster Wallace completed suicide. He was only 46. There's a movie about about him. And after... Uh, having these questions about, hey, what, what was that like? I thought, well, let's let's see this movie. The movie's called The End of the Tour. And it's a film about David Lipsky, a reporter for Rolling Stone, 
who tags along with David Foster Wallace as he tours the Midwest doing readings and signing books. Lipsky himself has written a novel, one that has received just a fraction of the praise and attention of Wallace's infinite jest. And so Lipsky wants to know what it's like. What's it like to have lines going out the door of, uh, with people wanting you to sign their book and to have, have people call you a genius? Well, what he discovers about Wallace is, yeah, Wallace can be very thoughtful. And he can be insecure and a bit goofy. And Lipsky begins to wonder, is this all an act, this whole normal guy thing? He also wants to know about a rumor he's heard that in college, Wallace was committed to a psych ward as a result of a heroin addiction. Wallace, too, has heard that rumor. He says, look, the truth is far less interesting. Yes, had a breakdown. It wasn't heroin. It wasn't that glamorous. But Lipsky keeps pushing, wants to know more. And it becomes a source of tension between the two. On the night before Lipsky returns to New York, Wallace knocks on his bedroom door. Look, he says, it wasn't drugs it w- or, or a chemical imbalance. And here's what he says. It was much more that I lived an incredibly American life. The idea that if I could just achieve X and Y and Z, then everything would be okay. And that turned out to be a lie. Achieving all that meant Nothing. And on the one hand, he says, this realization made him feel superior to everyone else who still, who still believed the lie. On the other hand, discovering that it was a lie, knowing it was all a lie, made it impossible for him to function. The creation is a gift, and it is full of gifts that take a wide variety of forms. And they can be so wonderful that we are easily convinced that if we just obtain enough of them, it'll be okay. We can consume our way to happiness, whether we, cons- whether we consume our things or praise or success. And David Foster Wallace discovered it's not true. It's a lie. Good and lovely as his creation is, what it supplies is only temporary. It's all castles made of sand. Adam and Eve didn't know this. They think God's withholding something, and so they eat. That's not what they thought. They don't get what they wanted. They aren't gods. They're creatures, creatures formed from earth, sand castles. They feel their temporariness, their nakedness, their frailty, and it's impossible to function as they once had. They miss the whole point of the tree. It's not there because God was withholding something from them. They had all they needed already. It's there to remind them that there are needs that the creation itself, despite all its abundance, cannot supply. There's nothing we can consume that satisfies these deep spiritual longings. We need God for them. A God who stands over and above this world and its sandcastles. Meeting that need, that this spiritual need is not a matter of consuming things, but of letting go, surrendering. You know, in the movie, when Lipsky wakes up the next morning after the knock on his bedroom door, uh, he finds Wallace outside scraping snow off his windshield. They say their goodbyes before Lipsky says, hey, I need to go back inside the house and finish packing. 
And so he does. He, well, he goes back inside, but he doesn't pack. Instead, what he does is he pulls out a tape recorder and runs from room to room of Wallace's modest home and just says into the tape recorder various details that he sees. Stacks of books piled next to the bed, dirty coffee mugs, a corkboard with photos of his family. Oh, good-looking sister. A towel instead of a curtain. Boom, 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 all around the house. And then he gets to the bathroom and he sees uh, a postcard with a quote on it. And so he stops to read the postcard. And there's a quote. It says this. Teach us, good Lord, to serve thee as thou deservest, to give and not to count the cost, to fight and not to heed the wounds, to toil and never seek to rest, to labor and not to ask for any reward save that of knowing that we do thy will. To labor and not to ask for any reward save that of knowing that we do thy will. Now, quote is not discussed any further just sort of put out there but it strikes me as evidence of Wallace's desire for eternity beyond the temporary his spiritual needs the gift is or the creation is full of gifts abundance food and friends literature and lovers there is a longing in us to consume it all to satisfy every need and then some to achieve X, Y, and Z and think that'll make it okay. We do have material and relational needs. We are creatures formed from the ground, but we are also spiritual beings. Divine breath gives us life. To deny this is to believe a lie. The tree sat in the middle of the garden as a reminder of that, that in the end, the only gift that matters is the gift of God's own self, eternity in the midst of what's fleeting and temporary, bedrock in a world of sandcastles. Now the prohibition against eating is not because God's withholding anything or is attempting you know, to test our willpower or something like that. No, it's an opportunity for the human beings to demonstrate that doing thy will is enough. That's what satisfied God gives all this. But God also gives them a place to stop, to surrender, to remember. So much of the life of faith is like that. It's stopping. It's remembering you're not just a consumer. Yes, we want to eat. We stop. We give thanks. Yes, we want to work and be productive, but we stop. We rest. We worship. We want money, of course we do, but we stop, we give. These habits, they run contrary to our consumer impulses. We don't wanna stop, it's our time, it's our money. We worry we won't fill our needs, but we have greater needs. Needs only eternity can satisfy. And so we pray, teach us, good Lord, to labor and not to ask for any reward, save that of knowing we do thy will. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.